Hi everyone, it's Vicki Basilica from the ASHP section of Clinical Specialists and Scientists. And I'd like you to welcome you to this special episode of Therapeutic Thursdays. Once again, I'm excited to share some of the great clinical content that was a part of the 2020 Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. Please enjoy this highlight and be sure to check back soon for more features. This is the Ambulatory Care Pharmacist's role in taming the STD epidemic, talk, test, and treat for the big three. So we are going to talk today about the big three. And you may not think of the big three as being STDs, but we're going to be talking primarily about chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis. We have seen an explosion in STDs for five straight years in the US. And now we have seen more than 2.4 million reported cases of these three conditions in the year 2018, which is the year we have the most recent data for. So when we're looking at these three infections, the majority of the infections are chlamydia infections. And luckily, this is actually the infection that we've seen the smallest increase in growth in the past four years. Unfortunately, gonorrhea cases have risen almost 70% since 2014. And most alarmingly, syphilis has increased by over 80%. With the increase seen in syphilis, we've also seen an increase in a very preventable and very sad consequence of syphilis, which is the case of congenital syphilis. In 2018, congenital syphilis resulted in 94 infant deaths. Congenital syphilis has alarmed the country because this is a nearly 200% increase since the year 2014. When we look at chlamydia, I think it's important for all of us to think about where we live and how this is impacting the country, the state and community in which we practice. Even in the state of Utah where I live, which is traditionally not thought of as a place with a lot of STDs, we have seen increases dramatic increases in chlamydia and gonorrhea. These graphics from the CDC point out that the states in dark blue have the highest rate of, of chlamydia and gonorrhea in our country, but every state is affected. And so I encourage you to look more at individual rates in your community in order to identify where you can assist with this epi epidemic. When we look at the rates of primary and secondary syphilis and congenital syphilis, they are also alarming and really widespread. Even in the state of Utah, again, we are seeing, we are not the lowest state in the country and we are seeing increases in both of these. Um, and with congenital syphilis, we know this is preventable. So again, identifying uh, risk in your community is important to look at as you look at trying to reduce these risks. One of the things that can be very valuable as you think about how to identify what your goals may be for in your community for treating and preventing STDs is to look at the Healthy People guidelines. Healthy People 2030 was just released and I would encourage you to look at it as an ambulatory care pharmacist to really identify how you can contribute to public health in your community. But the 2030 goals for STD control are outlined as follows. There is still an emphasis on the need to routinely screen for chlamydia in young women ages 15 to 24, because this is our highest risk group for chlamydia. 
We currently have a screening percentage of about 55% in our country, and Healthy People 2030's goal is to increase that to 67%. In terms of gonorrhea, the goal is to focus on reducing the rate of gonorrhea in adolescent and young males in that same age group, ages 15 to 24. We are currently seeing 523 cases of gonorrhea per 100,000 males in this age group, and the goal would be to reduce it to around 471. In terms of syphilis, we actually have three goals. One, to reduce the rate in females, and really, logically, it follows that if we can reduce the rate in females, we can reduce rates of congenital syphilis. In terms of a reduction in syphilis rates in men, in men who have sex with men who are traditionally thought of as the highest risk group, we've actually done pretty well with increased screening in this population. And the, and the Healthy People 2030 goal is to maintain the current rate of um, syphilis in this population, or of course to decrease it. But this is not um, a, a large target of Healthy People 2030. The CDC also puts out global goals for STD prevention and control. And if we look at goals associated with the big three, we see the following. And this is very important because I think patients, especially young women, may not realize why we want to prevent and appropriately treat chlamydia and gonorrhea. But really we want to do that in order to prevent STD-related pelvic inflammatory disease, which may be a cause of chronic pelvic pain, to reduce ectopic pregnancies, and very much so to reduce the rates of infertility that are caused by these STDs. Second, we must prevent antibiotic-resistant gonorrhea. We'll talk about this in depth in a moment, but we have one truly effective drug to treat gonorrhea at this point, and that is a very tenuous state in gonorrhea pharmacotherapy. We'd love to be able to prevent primary and secondary syphilis, because if we can do that, we can eliminate congenital syphilis. And certainly increased prenatal screening will also help to eliminate congenital syphilis. Now, I had hoped when I had submitted this in uh, earlier this year, that we would have a robust new guideline um, for the treatment of STDs from the CDC in the year 2020. The CDC guidelines are typically issued every five years and our last update was in 2015. There has been no word from the CDC who admittedly is quite busy with that other thing going on right now um, regarding an update to the CDC STD guidelines. They are, when I queried about this, they let me know that probably sometime in the first part of 2021, we would have new guidelines. Every year, there are nationwide STD statistics that are released in October. When this slide set was made, the slides are based on the 2015 guidelines and the 2018 statistics that were released in October 2019. So our objectives today are to identify opportunities to talk to our patients about STD risks and prevention. Second, Given a patient at risk for STDs, summarizing the appropriate testing strategy in order to be able to detect these STDs. And finally, to construct a plan for effective delivery of STD treatments for both patients and partners 
utilizing expedited partner therapy when allowed by law. So we'll first start by talking, talking about the opportunities for talking with our patients about STD risk screening and prevention. And as ambulatory care pharmacists, we have many opportunities during our um, process of comprehensive medication management. The first that I'd really like to emphasize is the opportunities that occur during immunization screening. We can prevent STDs um, and viral uh, illnesses by pre-exposure vaccination, particularly for HPV, but also for hepatitis B and hepatitis A in children and adolescents. One of the things that can be done in asking our patients about risk and what vaccines they may be um, indicated for is to say something like, some vaccines are recommended for specific patient groups. Can I ask a few questions to ensure that you are protected appropriately? There are um, indications for Hep A, Hep B vaccine in the group of men who have sex with men. So knowing that patient's sexual preferences is important in order to ensure we are offering them the appropriate vaccines. Also, discussion about this, as well as discussion about HPV vaccine, can lead to discussions about further STD screening. So using those opportunities that may come up in talking about immunizations can then lead to um, talking about STD risk. There have been a couple of uh, US Preventative Services Task Force updates in 2019 and 2020 that also indicate opportunity for us to discuss risk with patients. So the for hepatitis C screening, USPSTF now recommends that all people ages 18 to 79 be screened for hepatitis C. That's an expansion of the previously available recommendation. For HIV, their recommendation is now that all people ages 15 to 65 be screened for HIV, and of course, continue screening based upon risk in other populations and in people outside that age group. Finally, chlamydia and gonorrhea screening is recommended for women age 24 and younger, all, of, all women who are sexually active, and older women who have continuing STD risk factors. We have opportunities to discuss STD risk screening and prevention in other areas, including the, when we talk to patients about contraception and emergency contraception, the growing area of pharmacist provision of PrEP and PEP, and also when we provide care to our transgender patients. So thinking about the opportunities to talk about STD risk screening and prevention as a part of the work that we are already doing in comprehensive medication management. Just as an example, if you look at the 2020 immunization schedule, you'll see in table two, which is the schedule by medical condition and other indications for this year, that there is a, um, there is a column for men who have sex with men. And in particular, hep A and hep B are recommended in this population where they may not be a strong recommendation for all adults. We also have a column for patients with HIV infection and current HIV infection that indicates what vaccines may be appropriate for those patients. So in terms of talking to patients, it's important to become comfortable talking about sexual history taking. And the CDC in the 2015 guidelines has some very good recommendations for how to 
do this in a consistent and um, unobtrusive fashion. And they call this the five Ps. So the five Ps are partners, practices, pregnancy, and prevention, and protection from STDs and past history of STDs. I think sometimes doing this in a standardized way with all patients will very much help you in feeling more comfortable with this. I know when we first started talking to patients about smoking cessation and if they smoke tobacco, there was a lot of discomfort and um, with pharmacists, you know, and why would a pharmacist ask you that? I think if you can frame this as a part of immunizations, as a part of preventive care, that is will provide the best um, care for our patients. So in terms of partners, asking, do you have sex with men, women, or both? And I cannot underscore the importance of asking this of every patient. Don't make judgments of your patient. Don't make assumptions of your patients. Ask every patient. Other question, how many partners have you had in the last two months or the last 12 months? That can give you an indication of risk for STDs. In terms of practices, it's very important to understand a patient's risk for STDs based upon sexual practices beyond whether they have sex with men, women, or both. So understanding the kind of sex that people are actually having can help you identify areas that they may need to be screened. So three questions. Do you have, have you had vaginal sex? If yes, do you use condoms? Have you had anal sex? If yes, do you use condoms? And then have you had oral sex? These are all very important questions to identify locations of potential STD screening need. I love the question for pregnancy. What are you doing to prevent pregnancy? I have received the most quizzical looks of patients who realize at that moment that maybe they should be doing something to prevent pregnancy, but hadn't really thought about it in that way before. Protection from STDs. What do you do to protect yourself from STDs and HIV? And again, I think this very nicely worded, open-ended question will allow for a good conversation with patients. Have you ever had an STD? Have any of your partners had an STD? Gets it past history. And then finally, some really important questions to identify risk for HIV, viral hepatitis, and most significantly, syphilis include have you or any of your partners ever injected drugs? Have you ever exchanged money or drugs for sex? And just kind of a global grab bag, is there anything else about your sexual practices that I would need to know about in order to help you? Now, USPSTF also has released a grade B recommendation about behavioral counseling. And this was released in August of 2020, published in JAMA. I'd encourage you to read this. It is very detailed in terms of what are the behavioral counseling recommendations that are most effective for both sexually active adolescents and adults who are at increased risk for STDs. There are discussions about how to weave this into practice and focusing on vaccination, contraceptive counseling, and counseling of patients who are currently being treated for STDs. There's detailed information about what kind of message is the most impactful. Media messages tend to be very impactful. Um, and you can imagine the use of social media can really enhance these messages. But one-on-one -on -one discussion um, can be helpful as well. What is in these messages? 
factual information, which I think is the biggest thing that is lacking in adolescence today. There's also some programs that have focused on motivation for safer sexual practices, empowerment of adolescents, and training in condom use, problem solving, and communication with sexual partners. So let's talk about how we can um, enter into these conversations with patients. A 24-year-old woman asks you about contraception and emergency contraception as you are reviewing her medications during a visit to discuss her asthma. Should you ask her about sexual history? I think many pharmacists would say, no, 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 I'm not gonna ask about sexual history. But actually this is an incredible opportunity to talk about sexual history, get some information from your patient, and then be able to talk about STD risk and STD screening. It's a great opportunity, and any time you are talking about contraception, hormonal contraception, um, you should talk about dual contraception in sexually active patients. So that's the use of condoms for STD prevention and effective hormonal contraception for um, pregnancy prevention. It is a incredibly strange myth to me that many patients believe that they are, if they're using hormonal contraception, it in somehow protects them against STDs, which of course we know is absolutely not the case. Remember that this patient is seeing you at this time as you're discussing her asthma as a medication expert. She's giving you the opportunity by asking questions, take the opportunity that she has given you. In terms of prevention, I think we cannot emphasize the use of condoms enough. Male condoms and female condoms used consistently and correctly prevent the spread of, H of STDs. Unfortunately, we should be or we should be notifying patients that they should not be using natural membrane male condoms. And spermicides, the nonoxanol 9 that is available in the US, can actually increase the risk of STD by causing significant irritation in the genital tract and facilitating um, entry of uh, STDs. So at this time, spermicide use um, is actually not recommended as a way to um, prevent STDs. There's a lot of research going on right now in better spermicides, better vag vaginal microbicides that actually may help that but as of this time, there is nothing on the market um, that will do that. Other opportunities for prevention and screening are when a patient is um, thinking about becoming pregnant or is pregnant. So if you're, if you're a pharmacist that's filling prenatal vitamins or asking questions about that, certainly having patients screened before pregnancy and have receiving appropriate vaccines is very important. But prior to pregnancy, screening is really risk and age guided. Once a person is pregnant, that first prenatal visit and the screening labs for STDs that are recommended become very important. So every patient at the first prenatal visit should receive chlamydia, gonorrhea, syphilis, hep B, and HIV screening. Um, if chlamydia is positive at this screening, then the patient should receive a test of cure in three to four weeks and be rescreened in three months. In the third trimester, if the patient is less than 25 years old or has high risk sexual practices, they should be rescreened for chlamydia. 
at that time as well, if the patient is high risk or not previously screened for gonorrhea, syphilis, hep B, and HIV, that should be done in the third trimester as well. Hepatitis C in the new um, USPSTF guidelines and CDC recommendations, there is a recommendation to screen at the first prenatal visit for each pregnancy unless the baseline rate in that community is less than 0.1%. And the only state that I could maybe figure out from the um, graphics in the, in the publication was potentially Hawaii, but we are limited by some data collection for both that and other states. So in general, it is not wrong to screen for hepatitis C at that first prenatal visit as well. Other opportunities for prevention and our post-treatment screening, and I think these are often lost. So there is a recommendation because of the high rate, not of treatment failure, but for the high rate of reinfection, that in patients who are treated for chlamydia and gonorrhea, and any female who's been treated for trichomoniasis should be rescreened three months after they are treated. Syphilis-specific rescreening parameters are very, very complicated. And so I would encourage you to look at those in the guidelines. Um, and it's important that when we are seeing patients with syphilis, we reacquaint ourselves with the guidelines because I think it's something that, you know, in previous years, many of us did not see very frequently, but certainly it's something that is increasing. And I have probably seen more patients with syphilis and been asked about them in the past year than in the past five years combined. In our PrEP patients, if high-risk behaviors are continuing, which may, may occur, um, we should be doing STD screening every three months. And I have seen this as an incredible resource to really get our patients both screened and treated. And we are treating a lot of STDs because we're screening for them and we're finding them. And that's, that's what we should be doing. So in terms of screening, let's talk about this. So a 19-year-old sexually active woman comes to your pharmacy or your clinic for contraception. She has been using the contraceptive ring for three years and would like a refill. She'd had a pap smear that was within normal limits a year ago. She does have sex with men and women, but has had and has had one male partner for the past year. She has never had STD screening in the past, and she has never had STDs that she's aware of. So what screening should be offered to this patient? For this patient, she should be offered chlamydia and gonorrhea, but also remember new guidelines recommend that she should also be screened for HIV and hepatitis C. Unfortunately, I think many patients, many providers and healthcare professionals would either pick just chlamydia and gonorrhea or would not think of screening this patient at this time. One of the areas that I think the CDC guidelines have been very good at is looking at special populations. And so when we think about screening in special populations, um, we need to really talk about an important question. So the first special population is women who have sex with women. And a very important question for this population is do you have sex with men, women, or both? Um, there are known risks for women who have sex with women only regarding HPV transmission. transmission. Um, so emphasizing vaccination for prevention and cervical cancer screening for detection and treatment. 
And there are known risks of HSV or herpes transmission, which is possible, but much less common than that seen in women who have sex with men. For chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis, there's very, very little data, and there is a data need in this population so that we can better inform testing, screening, and treatment. For our patients that are transgender, basing screening is recommended to be focused on the patient's current anatomy and their sexual behaviors and practices. There is not a one message or one recommendation for screening for transgender men and women, but we should treat each patient individually and assess their current anatomy and their current sexual behaviors and practices. Other special populations are, as we've discussed previously, men who have sex with men. This is a very high risk group for um, STDs. They are the highest risk group by number for syphilis, and unfortunately, our uh, racial and ethnic minorities are overrepresented in this risk. So Black and Hispanic men who have sex with men have an even higher risk. There is an increasing rate of rectal and pharyngeal gonorrhea in this population and an increased risk of HIV. There is also a higher risk of resistant gonorrhea seen in men who have sex with men when compared to men who have sex with women. For all sexually active men who have sex with men, we should be doing annual screening at a very minimum for HIV, syphilis, and then gonorrhea and chlamydia based upon sexual practices. And this is where those conversations about what type of intercourse a patient is having become so important. Because if we don't ask, and we only do urethral gonorrhea and chlamydia, we will miss many, many cases of STDs. I love this infographic um, because the CDC is really trying to put the emphasis that we can't just think about STDs in traditional STD areas. We have to think about the throat and the rectum. So we need to test more than genitals, being very blunt about that. Um, if we look at men who have sex with men screened for chlamydia and gonorrhea, one in eight had an STD in either the throat or the rectum would be missed if we did not screen in those areas. Unfortunately, we still have one third of patients who are men who have sex with men who are not screened at all in the past 12 months. So some area for improvement there. So listen to your patients. A thorough sexual history will tell you where to test for men who have sex with men. Frequently, patients with pharyngeal or rectal chlamydia or gonorrhea are asymptomatic. If we only do urine or urethral testing, we may miss 70 to 88% of these infections. So test, 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 and test in the right place. For women, I think we often have providers that are not thinking about extragenital testing, but it's extremely important. So again, a thorough sexual history will tell you where to test and listen to it. In a study recently published in Obstetrics and Gynecology in 2018, I was stunned. This study looked at over 50,000 women and assessed how many infections would be missed if only vaginal or urine testing was done. Among women who reported, again, the, a thorough sexual history, and they reported anal intercourse, not testing rectally 
would have missed 20% of chlamydial infections because they were rectal um, and 18% of gonorrhea infections because they were rectal. So we need to be testing where patients are telling us they're having sexual activity. So we need to talk about it, we need to test appropriate areas, and finally, we need to treat. One of the things that's come about as a result of COVID is that um, testing has become more difficult. So traditionally, when most of our patients were coming into clinic, we would have them do self-collection um, in the office or provider collection if, if the patient preferred, and we would be able to you know, rapidly get those results back and give patients appropriate treatment. But with COVID, so many of our visits are now virtual or telephone, and we need to have methods that allow patients to test um, outside the walls of the um, clinic office room or the office the exam room in order, to, um, in order to assess their status in terms of infection. So we've worked with our labs um, in our building where a patient can drop in and perform self-collection and then be able to turn those um, swabs into the lab and we can process those results. But you may need to have some communication with your lab because this is not the traditional way that labs have, have functioned. Patient self-collection, there are several studies that demonstrate that patients prefer self-collection to provider collection. So if you go into the bathroom at my clinic, you'll see a poster on the wall that tells you how to do a rectal swab um, for chlamydia and gonorrhea. There are no currently available gonorrhea or chlamydia home testing kits per se. They are home collection kits. There are a few studies looking at pharmacy-based screening. Pharmacy-based screening is um, very well received because it's accessible. The most focus in these studies is on chlamydia, gonorrhea, and HIV. And because of the limitations with um, effective chlamydia and gonorrhea testing in terms of point of care versus self-collection, most has been on HIV. In a very interesting study done in Virginia, an HIV testing in a community pharmacy was associated with increased access, obviously, more frequent testing, and then most importantly, more frequent referral and access to subsequent HIV care. So I think we'll see more about um, home testing and patient self-collection for STDs in the future. Finally, we'll talk about syphilis. Um, syphilis, if you have ever looked into this in detail, is incredibly complex. Um, so many of you were probably taught the traditional screening for syphilis involving a non-treponemal test, which is typically RPR, with a reflex to a treponemal test if that's positive. And there's a variety of treponemal, specific treponemal tests that are available. Something new that you may see is a reverse sequence screening. So with this type of screening, you would do the treponemal test first, then if positive, reflex to an RPR. And if that is positive, reflex to an RPR titer to define treatment. This has some issues. If the patient has a history of having syphilis, they have um, a higher likelihood of being positive, but that positivity may not indicate a need for treatment. But the benefits are it can catch more newly acquired cases and long-standing infection that may have lost RPR reactivity. I would highly encourage you, if you're being asked questions about treatment 
based upon screening test results for syphilis, that you go to the New York Department of Health resource, their syphilis monograph 2019, and download it. I recently had a case where I was trying to figure out, should we be treating a patient? And this was exceptionally helpful in really walking me through what is positive, what should what rescreening should be done and has really wonderful tables and algorithms and it's actually i found this research by following a link from the cdc website so they, they are um, directing people to this really rich resource so in terms of syphilis i think many people have thought about this is a concern in our men who have sex with men and certainly that is a concern but we need to also be aware that there's other rising risk factors for primary and secondary syphilis. Those include methamphetamine use, injection drug use, and heroin use. And the risk groups that are rising for these are in our women and heterosexual men, not in our men who have sex with men. So the drug epidemic and the STD epidemic are termed intersecting epidemics. We really need to think about risk in patients who may be coming to see us who are using and injecting drugs. And that's not, um, that's a wide variety of different patients. One of the things that can be most valuable about frequently visiting the uh, CDC webpage for STDs is identifying when there are shortages um, of both drugs and screening test materials. So in September, the CDC issued a letter regarding a shortage of supplies for chlamydia and gonorrhea testing. When that happens, they also released a prioritization schedule for who should be receiving um, gonorrhea and chlamydia testing. And well, in your community, in my community, I did not feel the impact of the shortage of supplies. It's good to know that if you did, you could go to the CDC website and they would tell you what. Um, how you could tier your testing based upon uh, risk. They will also do this if there is a drug shortage. And what is wonderful about it is that they will give recommendations on how to treat if there is a shortage of the primary medication that is used to treat a specific STD. So talking and testing are very important. We also need to talk about appropriate treatment. And these infographics are all available for you to use with patients, for students to use, to generate community awareness. Um, the CDC is very aware that much like that behavioral um, USPSTF recommendation, they need to use a variety of methods to act, to encourage information sharing between both providers, but also with patients. Thanks so much for listening into today's episode from the 2020 Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. It's features and content like this that make the ASHB Mid-Year Clinical Meeting the place to learn and to take your practice to the next level. Be sure to join us in December for more great clinical content.